Good afternoon, everyone. Very happy to see all of you. We have a good attendance here today of over 100, even though we have several of our ministers missing out on visits. I know Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Crockett are up in Raleigh and uh, others are elsewhere. And uh, I don't know every detail of where everyone is, but other families are gone as well. Of course, Mr. and Mrs. Ruddleston are up to the summer camp and are helping up there with the finances. And he teaches a class. And uh, everyone that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ames are up at the summer camp, if I mentioned that, I don't know. I, I usually go, but I wanted him to have the opportunity to go. So uh, they're taking my place up there this particular summer, and I'll go elsewhere. But uh, welcome to any of our new guests. I see one new couple here today, and there may be others as well. Uh, we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. I remember when I first came to uh, Ambassador College, that was so many years ago, and I heard about the Feast of Tabernacles. That year it came real early, about three or three and a half weeks of classes. Then we left. I thought, what is this? But then as time went on, I began to realize that nearly all churches have uh, campouts, so they have holidays or special occasions. And we in God's church, perhaps our guests already know that, try to keep the holy days described in the Bible that uh, Jesus Christ and the apostles kept. And, of course, that's why we're keeping this. And you read in John, the seventh chapter, and you read there where Jesus kept that particular feast. And he is our example. He's the light of the world. But we base it on a lot more than that, of course, as well. We really have had a fine lot of new doors open to us recently. I want to mention some more today. You know about the Reader's Digest. And I meant to bring the copy I had. How many of you got your new Reader's Digest? Good. Just... Uh, Two or three of you here, families. Mr. and Mrs. Ames got there, and Mr. Bomer gave me theirs, or he gave it to him to give to me, I guess. And I forgot to bring it today to hold it up, but you couldn't see it too well anyway. But we're on page 215. Page 215, a full-page message ad talking about the need for Christ's coming and the book of Revelation unveiled, advertising that booklet and, of course, we expect tens of thousands of responses. We hope we get at least twenty or 30,000, uh, maybe more, which would be added to our mailing list. So our subscription list is already up to about 280,000. And so I think we'll quickly break through 300,000 now. And we're on the way to that half a million goal that we have set. And Mr. Bonjour tells us we can handle that very well. So we're very grateful for that. And I hope that all of you, and I ask you to please pray about that. Ask God in heaven to sort of cause people to turn. He can do that. So they turn to page 215. <laughs> they may not all turn there, you know. But ask Him to help them turn to page 215 and to see that ad and respond if it's His will. And certainly that will do them a lot of good, as you know. If we happen to be preaching the truth of Almighty God, that's going to help them a very great deal. Also, as you know, we are on a new station or new stations across the United States in Memphis, Dallas, New Orleans, Houston, and now we're adding new stations in San Antonio, Cincinnati, and even a new station here, I understand, in a few weeks, beginning at uh, 6.30, I think it is, on Saturday morning. And uh, beside that, we have a brand new station in South Africa that we'll be starting soon, a television station. Mr. Hull has been praying about that for a long time down there. And the biggest news of all, which is very exciting, and I hope you'll pray about this, it will probably become our second greatest outlet. Our greatest door is WGN, and we'll get six or 800 responses or more every week from WGN. 
But now the Inspiration Network that we're on over in Britain, and that's another big door we've had before recently, but they're opening up to us in the United States. And we're very, very grateful for that. We have a lock on that. And uh, Mr. Pyle told me the other day, where is Mr. Pyle? Well, there he is, so that's a lock, right? Is it Friday or we don't know which night yet, I guess? Friday night. Friday. Okay, we're very, very grateful. It's going to be Friday night uh, at uh, actually, uh, well, in the West Coast, you mean. <laughs> Friday night at the West Coast. So the West, it goes right across the United States at the same time in the sense, you know, where it changes per time zone uh, because it's the same, uh, concurrently the same program. So they're going to hear it in the West Coast, which is where we have the least stations right now. We gave up our Los Angeles station some time ago because it was so expensive and didn't seem to do that much good. And uh, so we don't have stations, in, any good stations at least. We have some public access, but we don't have any big stations, as you know, in San Diego, Los Angeles, Sacramento, Fresno, uh, San Francisco, Oakland, Portland, East Seattle, Tacoma. And now we're going to reach them at 10 p.m., which is a wonderful time, on Friday nights. 10 p.m. We're very, very grateful that Jesus Christ has opened that door for us. Of course, the downside is that we're going to reach Charlotte and the whole East Coast at 1 a.m. <laughs> and so that will be, of course, uh, that'll be Saturday morning in a sense for them. But at the same time, a lot of people do reach, are reached at such a time, and we found that up in Canada when we had this program on vision. They offered us, for much less money, a 1.30 a.m. time, I think it is. Isn't that right? 1.30? 3 a.m. 3 a.m., okay. 3 a.m., and uh, we find we're getting a better response per dollar uh, at that time, I think, than a regular time. It's amazing. So a lot of people are somehow up and watch these you know, I don't know what they're doing, but they're up <laughs> and God is reaching them. So we're very grateful for that. It costs less money at such a time, but we do reach a lot of folks. So again, when you think about uh, 1 a.m., remember New York, the city that never sleeps. <laughs> New York and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., Boston, even Charlotte and so on. So we'll be reaching a lot of folks all across the United States and we're very, very grateful. So please pray about that, that God blesses our program on the Inspiration Network all across the United States. Plus, we're already on and getting a fairly good response in British, the British Isles and Europe, parts of North Africa and the Middle East. So we're very grateful for what Christ is doing. And this is a big step forward. We just had door after door open to us uh, in the last, uh, frankly, several months. It's amazing. I do ask you to pray that God will bless the new coworker letter. Mr. Bajur got that letter mailed out Thursday, I think Thursday afternoon. And uh, so uh, that should be reaching our home soon. Uh, we do need the funds to go on these stations. And uh, the guys know that I step way out sometimes. So we're right on the edge of the cliff. We haven't jumped over the cliff yet, but we're pushing. And we're certainly going to have to have funds to, to stay on these stations. So pray about that. Ask God to bless and inspire the brethren. So we can have the impact on this world that he wants us to because brethren, world events are speeding up. You all know that. At first they said this morning on the news, 49 people were slaughtered over there in the Sharm El Sheikh resort uh, in Egypt, right on the Red Sea. And I've been right near that, right across the way from it where you could see it. And some of you have been to that part of the world. A lot of Americans and Europeans and uh, Israelis and others go there. 
And then they said 75, and just at 12 o'clock noon, I heard the news again. My wife knows I'm a news fiend, so I punched on the news again, and the, the death toll had gone up to 83, and over 120 injured. And, of course, they had another incident in Britain today, which did not turn out to be very much. This is the third, but they're constantly getting ready to do something else there. And we all know that the United States is next. In the meantime, whole vast areas of the Midwest and the South are suffering from drought. And some states out west, the worst drought in many, many decades, and they're running out of water. God will get their attention one way or the other if this nation does not turn back to God Almighty. He will. And we have a certain amount of time to get out there with the gospel of the kingdom of God, the Ezekiel warning message that you read about in Ezekiel chapter 33, and we feel deeply that does pertain to us. We need to get that message out to help the descendants of ancient Israel know who they are, really who they are, and what's going to happen if they don't repent. And we're trying to do that with all of our hearts. So we have a very exciting time ahead of us. Many, many other things are happening, of course. The Chinese just recently uh, revalued, up, upward valued their currency, the yuan, which means Chinese goods coming in here will be more expensive, and that will contribute to inflation in this country, plus the higher oil price and all the other things. These things are all working in concert to bring about what Jesus Christ said and the prophecies of the Bible would happen. So we're living in a very exciting time, and these things are very real. But because we're on all these new stations... And Reader's Digest ads, and we're going to keep on going across the country, if we can, on Reader's Digest, taking various sections of it, if God provides the money, we're going to begin to get a pretty big response, as you know. And that response is not going to be immediate. But sometime this autumn, I'm just guessing about November, December, January, and so forth, that response is going to come in big time. And I think we're going to grow a very great deal over the next calendar year. And gradually, not immediately, Mr. Armstrong used to say, it usually takes 18 to 36 months, a year and a half to three years, before very many new brethren come in when you go on a station or some new door. But nevertheless, down the line, these things are going to begin to happen, and people may respond more quickly today than they used to because they see these things happening. And these things were not happening in the same way several years ago. So we may have a number of new brethren coming in among us, and I hope all of us can really be aware of that and learn how to act and interact with them and love them, help them, encourage them, and how we interact with one another is very, very important. So because of that, I'm going to speak once again on one of the themes that I have set forth for this church, and that is servant leadership. We need to learn and practice servant leadership. That's a very important concept. Servant leadership involves being a leader, but being a servant first. And Jesus Christ has called every one of us to be kings and priests. You all know that without me going back over all those scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 6 tells us, Do you not know that the saints shall rule or judge the world? And Revelation 2, 26 and 27, he says, The overcomers shall rule. The nations with a rod of iron, you know, just like Jesus Christ. In Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, he says, We shall be kings and priests and rule on the earth, not up in heaven. The world is confused. They have everything wrong, practically. They don't understand. God has not called them yet. 
As I've said, I grew up in the Methodist church the first 19 years of my life, and I had to come to realize that the Methodists did not know where they came from, where they're going, or how to get there. They think they're going to heaven. And the Bible says, no, we're not going to heaven. Jesus said, no man has ascended up to heaven. And scripture after scripture tells us we're not going to heaven. Just very plain scriptures. We're to stay on this earth and rule under Jesus Christ. And, of course, they think they have an immortal soul. And the Bible says the soul that sins shall die. Revelation 18, verse 4, and many other scriptures show the same thing. And, uh, you know, they think you just receive Christ and you'll go to heaven. Just accept Christ. Invite Jesus into your life. And yet Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And it shows unless you obey God and really do what God says, you are not Christ's true followers and you will not be in God's kingdom. But the world has all those things mixed up, just one thing after the other. We're not smarter than they are. Many of the ministers in the world are very sincere. They mean well. God has not called them yet. He will call them in the great white throne judgment. We understand that. But He has not called them yet. In the meantime, we are blessed with that knowledge and that responsibility. So as new people come into the church, we want to welcome them. And we want to learn to treat each other the right way in the meantime so we're in the practice of practicing servant leadership. The whole concept is you have got to learn to be a servant. Your whole thought, your mental process, I'm here to serve, to help, to give, to encourage, to build others up, not to push them down, not to try to catch them at something bad, you see, but to help them and serve them in the right way, of course. Many of the world... The churches understand some of that, but they don't know how to do it because they don't understand the whole purpose of human existence. They think they just get sentimental and love Jesus and love one another in the way they understand it and then fled off to heaven. They don't understand that we're specifically being trained by the living Jesus Christ to be kings and priests in a coming world government to be set up with Christ ruling from Jerusalem, as the whole 14th chapter of Zechariah tells us and so many other places in the Bible. So we've got to learn and practice servant leadership among ourselves here and now. And then we'll be much better able to practice that and teach that and administer our city, as Jesus said in Luke 19, remember, verses 11 to 20, uh, to the people that were obeying and serving, those overcomers. He said, be over 10 cities. And the fellow who produced less, you also be over five cities. They were to rule cities in tomorrow's world. And that's exactly what we're training to do. Turn with me, brethren, to kind of get the picture now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read or drink a little bit of this tea here they bring for me. I have to explain that to our new brethren too. My, as I've gotten older, my throat gets uh, tired more quickly, so they give me a little bit of tea and honey, and that keeps me going a little better. Matthew 5, as most of you know, this is the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called in the Protestant world, at least. Seeing the multitude, Jesus went up on a mountain. So follow along in your Bible, check up on me, prove all things. And we want you all to prove these things because they come right out of the Bible. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, he doesn't want us to be spiritually poor at all, but as some of the commentaries explain, this expression meant deeply humble to realize how weak we are compared to God. The poor in spirit, we recognize our own lack, our own profound lack. 
compared to Christ and to God. And that can help us be more humble and help us be more teachable. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's say kingdom in heaven. The bank of Morgan is not Mr. Morgan's piggy bank that he swallows and it's in his stomach. Of denotes ownership. It's the bank of Morgan. He owns it. He controls it. Blessed are those who mourn. What do you mean mourn? All kinds of people mourn when they lose a job or they lose their mate or their child or friend. Again, it's talking about spiritual mourning, deep sorrow, profound repentance and grief over your sins and your own wretchedness. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. The word meek is slightly different from humble. It means teachable. It has the connotation of being teachable. Are you and I teachable? Can God get through to our minds new concepts? Are we teachable? For they shall inherit what? Go off to heaven? No. They shall inherit the earth. That's what it says in the Bible over and over always. No exceptions. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You cry out. You want God's righteousness. For they shall be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And we all need to be merciful to one another. Again, not trying to catch each other and hurt each other and put each other down. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, all of us human beings usually have an axe to grind because we're human. And God tells back in Jeremiah seventeen nine, The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Our normal, natural attitude and heart you know, we want what we want and we have good excuses for why we do what we do. But inside there's this selfishness connected with most of what we think and do unless we're converted. And then even then, about 99% of it is that way. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, when you're first converted, you have about 1% of God's Spirit. And then you have to grow and grow. And hopefully many of you have 30 or 40 or 60% of God's Spirit in the sense guiding you. 30 or 60% of your life is guided by God's Spirit. But we've got to be pure in heart, become that way, because we simply want to do what is right. We want to do what our Creator really wants us to do. You see, not because we want something out of it, but because we honestly want to do what God wants us to do. So that's what we've got to learn to obtain. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not those who stir up trouble, but the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, the true saints of God will be persecuted because we're going to preach very powerful truths the world does not understand, and they won't like that. They don't understand God's not called them yet. So blessed are you, you're persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of, not kingdom in, but kingdom in heaven. So here he lays out, a whole series of attitudes. And then he shows how you're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he says in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. We're to give the earth that tang, that meaning. So something good is happening in spite of the fact it's Satan's world. It's not God's world. Again, in the Methodist church, I used to sing in our Sunday school class, this is my father's world, you know. Well, of course, that's not God's world at all. Jesus says that. He says, the prince of this world is coming and has nothing in me. And over and over the Bible tells us, as in Revelation 12, verse 9, Satan the devil has deceived all the nations. Not some of them, but everybody. And over and over he tells us that. It's not God's world. God has allowed the great super archangel, the cherubim, Lucifer, who rebelled against God, 
to be cast down to the earth and he became Satan. His name meant light bringer, Lucifer. Then it was changed. God names things what they are to Satan, which literally means in the Hebrew adversary or enemy because he became the enemy. And God has allowed him now to be the one who influences. He's called the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, he guides the events and the attitudes in this world's atmosphere. And he helps people go the wrong way, influences them. And sometimes they're just going a little bit wrong. But as Mr. Armstrong used to explain, the space scientists at Houston Space Center and Mission Control over at Kennedy Space Center in Florida and all these other places, if they make a mistake, even one-sixteenth or one-one-hundredth of an inch, let's say, or even less than that and they're in their projections, then as the space vehicle or rocket or whatever they shoot out there goes out into space, what's it going to do? You say, oh, well, it's just one-sixteenth of an inch. <laughs> it can make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles difference. Because the projection is off. Mr. Armstrong wants us, God wants us, I'm sorry, to live exactly by what God says. He says, don't add to it or take from it. If God says, keep my Sabbath, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal, my God. He doesn't say, well, you can change that and water it down and turn it into Sunday. That's no big deal. You're still trying to observe one day in seven. No, you're not to change that just a little bit. You're not to change it at all. And we in God's church understand that because it's such an important thing. Terribly important thing and many other things like that. But in other words, we are to be the salt of the earth to truly come out of this world. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seized? Is it good for nothing but to be trampled uh, and thrown out uh, underfoot by men? You're the light of the world, verse 14. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. We in God's church are supposed to be the light of the world. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. When you put a light a lamp, you don't put something over it. Your whole purpose is to give light to the room so you don't put it under a basket but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And brethren here and you brethren around the world who are going to hear this in a few weeks by tape, Let's learn to really do this. We haven't preached on that a whole lot. Let's learn to be the light of the world in every way, and particularly, as I'm explaining today, in the way we treat one another and the way we treat new people when they come in the church. That's very important And being the light. If our light consists of being very strict and very self-righteous and very quick to catch people, some young girl walks in and her, shirt is, her skirt is a little bit short, we got you. You know, some young man comes in, his hair's a little long. We got you. Let's not play gotcha. Let's pray for, play forgive you, help you, encourage you, work with you, help you understand God's principles. That if a woman wears her skirt way too short, then it causes young men to stare at her and brings on lust, and those things are not good. But on the other hand, no one's going to suddenly die or rush out and commit rape just because a girl wears her skirt a little short. If that were so, no one would be safe today if they're watching TV or anything else. You know that. So be reasonable. Have brains. And be balanced. And try to help and give and serve in the way that you treat one another. Not just in those ways, but in every way. In every way, try to do that. Be a light to the world. God wants us to do that. And that's very, very important. 
over in uh, Matthew 22, if you turn over there, Matthew 22, beginning, brethren, in verse 35. I've often given you this because, of course, it's so very, very basic, the teaching of Christ here. Then one of them, a lawyer, one of these Pharisees and Sadducees who happened to be a lawyer, the Jewish law, asked him a question testing him. They were always trying to trap Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And uh, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love God with all of your being. He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. In Him we live and move and have our being. Every beautiful sunrise and sunset, every gorgeous mountain, every precious little child, every bit of beautiful music, every bit of beautiful art, everything we've ever seen that's good comes from God. We want to worship Him and adore Him and obey Him and walk with Him. That's the biggest and most important commandment there is. But the second commandment, he says, is like it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? Do you constantly try to catch yourself and put yourself down? I don't think most people do. Now, some people do. Some people even abuse their own flesh. And God talks about that in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, don't be righteous over much. And so in that sense, some people even hurt themselves by having an overly strict approach to life and they condemn themselves and they constantly feel guilty and they're too strict and uptight to perhaps get ulcers or whatever else they may get. That's not God's way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have the kindness, the warmth, the spirit of forgiveness, and the mercy, the outflowing concern that you would be like to be shown to you by others and constantly think, Brethren, constantly think, how can I do this? How can I do this with new people? How can I do this in this situation, that situation, some other situation? Turn now, if you would, back a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 now, and beginning in uh, verse uh, uh, 25. The disciples had heard that uh, John and his brother had asked to be seated on Christ's right hand and his left in the kingdom. Well, they were still kind of carnal and so were the others. His Holy Spirit was not yet given until after Pentecost, after Christ died. So they still had human nature. And so he called them. They were moved with indignation against their brothers. Verse 24. But Jesus called them and said, all his disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And you older brethren will remember the examples we saw, I saw over and over as a kid growing up during the Second World War. Here's Benito Mussolini up on the balcony. And then they scream, Viva, Viva, Viva el Duce, you know, and they were worshiping the Duce, Mussolini. And Hitler was going, you know, and screaming and yelling, and they'd go, Sig Heil. And they were worshiping him as a virtual God, which is what he wanted. And they lorded it over them. And some Gentiles in their nature like that kind of leadership. That's one reason we're, among many reasons, why we're losing out in Iraq. The Iraqis are not used to democracy. They're not used to kind, thoughtful leadership. They're used to a man telling them what to do and having an army to back it up and bang. And they're not used to that. They're rebelling. And, of course, there are other, many other reasons behind it. We know the Sunnis and the Shiites fighting one another historically and all the rest of it. But at any rate, they're not used to that. They're going to have to learn that whole different approach to life. 
But many of us have to learn that whole a different approach to life too. Not a militaristic, I'm going to put you down, catch you approach, but an approach I'm here to help you, honestly, to serve you, to encourage you, to build you up. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who were great exercised authority over them. Now back in our former association, as I've told you before, we had a number of deacons whom we called super deacons, some of us laughingly, some of us older ministers. And if they found a little old lady in the parking lot who was not parked in the right place, say, you're in the wrong place and move over here. Instead of saying, this is a little old lady, and, and they just leave her alone, or they say, can I help you, ma'am? I can park your car straight so someone else doesn't hit it, or be very kind about it with the whole thought, I'm here to serve this little old lady. Not that I'm here to catch you or something like that. The whole attitude should be different. We had ministers back then at times. I don't mean most of them were that way. Most of them were not. But we had ministers whom I could name. I'm not talking theoretically here. I just don't want to name them. But I definitely know them. As some of you know, I, I knew them per, quite well as the one who was even over them for a while and worked with them extensively for about 25 or 30 years, as a matter of fact, directly and indirectly. But they would try to come into someone's house and catch them to see if they had any white flour or white sugar or something like that, which is very, very tiny. Those things are tiny. They're worth practically nothing compared to the laws telling us how to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet people get those little tiny things just bent way out of shape. I remember when I was new in the church as an ambassador college student, and we'd been taught about you know, which is okay, you know, try to avoid white flour and white sugar and eat whole wheat bread and, and raw sugar or honey or natural things. It's better for you. That's fine. Why, well, Mr. Armstrong used to have a little penthouse. He didn't build it. It was just a little small penthouse up at the top of the library building. He took it as, as his office. And Mrs. Armstrong would fix his lunch up there and his, his uh, actual office, the other little narrow place was so narrow it wouldn't even hold a full desk so he used a woman's dressing table as he said for many years and couldn't even have a secretary but at any rate i came up one time i was student body president i could bang on the inside of the door there the uh, mr parting i'm sure i remember the metal plate on the inside of that door i'd bang on that and and open the door and bang on and say mr armstrong it's rod can i come up and he'd nearly always say yeah come on up and if he was typing, sometimes he'd keep right on typing and say, let me just finish this paragraph or something. But this one time I came up, and I think he and Mrs. Armstrong were having lunch, and he was having a cup of coffee. And I couldn't help it, I guess, my eye. I don't think I was staring at that, but maybe I was. I was looked over there, and I saw this white sugar, this white sugar bowl. And he looked at me, and he says, I see you, Rod. You're staring at my white sugar bowl. Well, I have this, some of you know, I have a... a intense look about me anyway and I was my eyes tend to bulge just automatically having been nearsighted so he it must have looked pretty bad as looking right over and he said now he says you need to realize I'm trying to practice what I preach and I don't need all kinds of ice cream and candy but he says I do once or twice a day have some coffee and I do put white sugar in my coffee and that's not going to kill me <laughs> well brother it did finally kill him you all know that at age 93 and a half. <laughs> just like a kid about my mother. My mother used to just love dessert. Now, she was not in the church, but she, one time I caught her over in uh, uh, Zurich or Geneva, Switzerland. I think it was Geneva. And 
Mr. and Mrs. Ames had brought her, and I was Deputy Chancellor Brickett Wood, and somehow we found we were going to meet up. I was scheduled to be there and preach anyway. So they were there, and she was having this rich Swiss dessert, and she had a cold, and her nose was running. And I said, well, Mother, you shouldn't have that dessert. You're going to hurt your... I was afraid she'd die, you know, or get a cold, get pneumonia. Here she was way off away from home, and she looked at me so pitifully... She said, Rod, if I can't have dessert, I don't even want to keep living. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> I tried not to bug her about her dessert. And her dessert did finally kill her too. And she, she was killed at age 94 years old. <laughs> I'm kidding. She didn't live to be 104, but 94. Anyway, so uh, those are not the major things. So a tiny bit of white sugar or a tiny bit of this or that is not going to kill you at all and we need to be balanced about those things and Mr. Armstrong was he set us that kind of example and uh, we ought to try to set that kind of example and not get buggy as we say about little things but at any rate Jesus told them here uh, the rulers of the Gentiles exercise authority they're always trying to catch people or put them down and show how great they are you can't eat white sugar I'm here as a minister and here I found you have this white flower in your closet just stupid stuff, frankly. That should not have been done by ministers to brethren. That's pitiful, brethren. That really is. No minister should do that. Yet it shall not be so among you, that kind of attitude, not just about white sugar flour, but about that attitude. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. So if you want to be great, come in with a genuine serving attitude. You see, practice servant leadership. Try to get in your mind, I'm here to try to serve. I want to help. I want to encourage. I want to build. And if I need to, on occasion, I can correct my brother. And as a minister, I can correct brethren too to help them. But I'd better be sure it's important enough to say something. And I can say it in a loving, kind, balanced way so I don't appear to be picking on them. You see what I mean? We've got to do that. If you're a parent... And Paul describes himself like a father in a certain sense in a couple places. We're not to use the term father like the Catholic Church at all. But a minister is like an older brother or father. Yes, you might correct the brethren in love as a right kind of father would do. And it's all right because we need to correct you. And as working here in the office, I may need to correct people about certain things. And Mr. Crockett is the office manager and director of business operations and office manager may need to say, well, do this or do that better or please get in on time or be careful how you spend the work's money or whatever, you know, things like that. And that's certainly right. We ought to do that. And occasionally we move people around. Now we had a disfellowship, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, 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 ben Faulkner, because they were causing division. Would it be love to leave them alone? No, frankly, it would not. That is not love. God commands. He says, mark those who cause division, you know, and so on, and have nothing to do with them. That's a command from God. Does God have love when He burns the wicked in the lake of fire? Is that love? Yes, when you understand it. Because those people, if they've had a whole lifetime, and He's going to eventually give everyone a genuine chance to know the full truth, and they still don't want it, what are they going to do? They're going to sort of rub against the grain and they're going to fight and argue and upset others and upset themselves throughout all eternity. It's more kind, frankly, that they just go to sleep. And that's exactly what God says. The wages of sin is death. 
Not eternal life in hell fire, but death. In the lake of fire, yes, but death. Romans 6, verse 23 says that very clearly. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages, the reward for sin is death. But the gift of God, something you don't earn, He gives you that, but upon the conditions that you repent and let Christ live in you. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the attitude, you see, if you're having to change someone's job, I know I'm reading management books, they often say that if you leave a man in a job where he doesn't belong, you're doing him a disservice. You really are, because eventually he's going to be rubbing and rubbing against the situation. He doesn't fit there. He's going to gradually realize it. Others are going to be hurt. He's going to be hurt until something explodes or he has ulcers or heart attack or, or has to be suddenly kicked out in a kind of a mean way or a quick way or something. It's better to change him while you can and put him where he belongs, put square pegs into square holes and round pegs in round holes where they honestly fit. And that's what we try to do. That's not hate. That is love. That is outflowing concern. And that's to be our attitude in that, and that's what we're trying to do. Do we ever make a mistake in that? Yes, we're human. But do we try not to make a mistake? Yes, we try very hard not to make a mistake. And sometimes we leave someone in a certain job or situation longer than we should, just so to be patient. Same thing in local churches. We may have deacons, and you ministers around the world, you may have deacons or other leading men who may be hurting others, and maybe you leave them there longer than you should. It's better to be patient, certainly, give them every chance, but if you sit, they just, it's not what they're made for. They're not best there. It's best to move them, and that is love. That is love. Don't put a person where he doesn't belong. He's going to hurt himself and hurt others, and it'll get worse, not better. So it shall not be so among you, this authoritarian, I'm in charge here approach all the time, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. If you want to be great, be a doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S in the Greek, a bond slave, a slave that has been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. And that should be my attitude and your attitude. I've been bought my Christ, by Christ. I don't belong to myself. My, my life is Christ's life. And He has to do with me as He would and try to, you know, take it that way and learn that way. And then God, if He wants to exalt you later on, if He changes your job or changes your status or you get corrected or you're in the doghouse for a while, <laughs> maybe you're, you're blessed. Maybe you'll learn lessons that way you might never have learned any other way. So whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your bond slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Christ came not to show how important he was, but to die. And yet every now and then he corrected the disciples very powerfully. Remember here Peter even came one time and, and he just got through saying, that I'll build my church on this rock. He said, you're a rock to Peter. There in Matthew 16, a, a small stone, Petros, but I'll build my church on this rock, using a different Greek word, the larger form, Petra, meaning a huge mountain cliff or something this huge foundation rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And of course, the Catholics think that was giving Peter all this authority. Well, it wasn't, but he was made as a rock and as a leader and given the keys to the kingdom of God, the knowledge, and so on. And then later he extended that to all the disciples in Matthew 18. Right after that, 
Jesus to begin to say, if you read Matthew 16, that he was going to have to be taken by men and crucified and so on. And Peter said, that'll not be so, Lord. I'm going to whip out my sword, but I'll take care of them and so on. And Peter said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense, for you don't understand the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. Here's the leading disciple. Get behind me, Satan. You'd say, oh, that's not very nice. No, Jesus would not fit very well at some of Emily Post's or Amy Van Buren's tea parties. He might rock the, might rock the table once in a while if someone did wrong, just like he came in the temple and jerked over the tables. And here are these traders, these Jewish leaders around selling, you know, various kinds of birds and things to sacrifice, as they should not have been doing, probably charging too much and making a bunch of manure and flies around. And can you picture it? Jesus said, get these things out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And he said he made a whip of cords, and I don't think he used the whip on the men, but on the animals. And he said, you get out of here. Get hence. Leave. And they got the message. Why? I don't think it was because they knew he was the son of God. They didn't know that. They were carnal. They later tried to kill him and put him down again and again. But somehow, the force of what he was saying the force of his personality, and Jesus was not like they have him look in these Protestant uh, pictures, you know, kind of real weak. He had worked hard as a carpenter and stonemason for about 30 years of his life. He's the one who said, whatever you do, do it with your might. He'd worked hard all day long. I bet he was strong as a bull. And when they saw this young man, very powerful, said, get out of here. I think they was time, it was time to get. <laughs> and they got out. Interesting. But he did it in love because Jesus is love. He did it to practice servant leadership, to clean up the temple. And so all those other people could begin to realize this kind of atmosphere is not supposed to be in the temple of the great God. Who was that temple to honor? It was made to honor him. He, Jesus, was the God of Israel. He was the rock of Israel, as it tells us back in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. No man has ever seen God at any time, but they did see the God of Israel, as you read in Exodus 24, and up on top after the law was given, He was that God. And they didn't even know God the Father, but they knew about the God of Israel, and there He was. He told them how to behave themselves powerfully, but in love. But He must have raised His voice on that occasion, because that was the thing to do. I told you one time my father whipped me because I got sassy and kicked him in the shins real hard when I was about six or eight years old. And I saw all the blood drain out of his face, not because it hurts so bad. He had very pale skin and freckles, and I knew something bad was coming. He said, let's go down to the basement. And he took me down to the basement, and he got the ironing cord, and boy, he whipped me where I'd never been whipped before, and it really did me a lot of good. I was good for several weeks after that, <laughs> which was a long time for me at that point in time. But uh, I needed it, and uh, sometimes God spanks us in His mercy to wake us up before it's too late as an act of servant leadership. So we've got to have that attitude of servant leadership to help others as best we can in every single situation. Now let's go to Galatians, the fifth chapter, brethren. Galatians uh, chapter 5, if you would. Here Jesus said in verse 16, Galatians five sixteen. I say then, walk in the Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. You see, you've got this battle in your mind. I want to do what I want to do and I want to be important. And anyone who gets in my way, I'm going to be upset and mad because they've, they've corrected me and then embarrassed me or hurt my feelings. Well, that's carnal human nature. And we've all got to battle against that. When I was put down on a number of occasions, I had to pray and fast and try to get over it and say, well, God has allowed this to happen to me to teach me lessons. And I didn't always have the right attitude, but I tried, and I'm still here, and I hope all of you can learn to have the right attitude. You brethren here, you brethren around the world, God's working with us. He is fashioning us and molding us. But he said in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, that is under the penalty of the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, all these bad things, heresies, dissensions, envy, murders, drunkenness, and revelries, wild parties and drinking too much and so on, and the like, which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't be there. It doesn't mean if you've ever got drunk or been to a wild party, you won't be in God's kingdom. It just means those who practice who have a way of life of doing those things regularly. Those who practice those things will not be in the kingdom of God. But the fruit, verse 22, the result, the fruit of the Spirit is first of all, as you know, love. Love is outflowing concern. Love and worship and adoration and a spirit of obedience and awe before the great Creator. That's the most important thing of all because once you have that, then he tells you how to love your neighbor. Apart from God, you don't know how to love your neighbor. And apart from God, you don't recognize that your neighbor is a a, a being made in God's image. And every single human life is precious in God's sight. You don't fully grasp those things. First, you've got to love God. But then love towards your neighbor, of course, is outflowing concern, deep mercy, compassion, good feelings, mercy, kindness, warmth, affection, outflowing concern for your fellow human being where you genuinely want the best for him. If you're a deacon or a deaconess and you have to help him, well, do this a little bit different, Helen or Mary or something. If you're the head deaconess, do it in love, not to show off. If you're the head deacon, do it the same way in love. If you're a minister, the same way, love all of us. Then joy, joy, of course, we basically know what that is, a deep peace of mind and exuberance, We're so grateful and happy about God's way of life for what God has given us. Peace, a peace of mind that passes all understanding, which we can have if we're walking with God, knowing we're not doing it perfectly, but we know basically we're going that direction. We can have an inner peace that passes all understanding. Long-suffering, we ought to put up. I put up with things sometimes with people for years, and finally you act when you realize you have to. But try to be patient. Others have been patient with me for years. Long-suffering. Kindness. Try to be kind. Some people have a great deal of human kindness. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful trait. Some of us are more intense and don't reflect that as easily. But we all ought to try to reflect it more. An atmosphere, an attitude, approach of kindness. Being gentle and, and good and encouraging. Goodness faithfulness, gentleness, not harshness, but gentleness, self-control, where you control yourself. You don't allow yourself to go the wrong way. You get up in the morning and pray. You study God's Word. 
You meditate, literally think over the what you've read in the Bible and how it applies to every phase of life. And you fast occasionally. And you say no to what is bad and right to what, and yes to what is good. You, self, you control yourself through God's Spirit, of course. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be showing love and kindness, outflowing concern. We'll think this is a fellow human being made in God's image. This other person, this man or woman, has his or her plans and hopes and dreams. And that's another thing in servant leadership or management. You're to try to help your people fulfill their own hopes and dreams the best you can in connection with your work or enterprise. You can't do all of it, but in other words, as an enterprise... Uh, we try to give them decent salary the best we can for a nonprofit organization. And we try to give them a good health plan. We try to have clean, uh, attractive places where they can work and a loving atmosphere and so on. Each of us ought to try to do that. You see, it, it, the best we can. We always need to do better. But have outflowing concern for those around us that they can fulfill their hopes and their dreams. And each manager... And each deacon and deaconess and each minister, of course, anyone who is over others and each parent ought to try to help anyone under you in that sense to think, well, how can I help this other human being to fulfill his hopes and dreams? I'm their servant to practice servant leadership. I want to help them. If they're a young person, I'd like to help them develop. And I kid one or two younger ones. I won't say who, but if I know them better, I try to help some of our young men to, you know, get good exercise and get good diet, be big and strong and healthy, you know. And I think I'm trying to help them as I would my own sons. And you want to help a young woman to be beautiful and be in good health as well. You hope that any that you work with and they're young people, you hope in due time they can be married, that they can have someone they love to hold in their arms and pour out their heart and their hopes and dreams to at night and share their lives with. You hope that for them because you know that's the best for the vast majority of human beings. It's not good for a man to be alone. It's not good for a woman to be alone. So you try to help them, encourage them. We need to have more activities for our young people, by the way. We've talked about that. We need to do that and so on. We're just such a small church in numbers. We don't have the, always the personnel to have as many summer camps and so many activities and as many dances and parties Back in Worldwide, we had a lot more of that stuff, and we had the Ambassador College, and I used to tell the fellows at, at uh, Big Sandy, well, I told them in Pasadena too, but I said, you're at the Happy Hunting Ground. That's what I called it, the Happy Hunting Ground. I'm the one that invented that, I think. Of course, the Indians invented it. I heard about that as I grew up, you know, thinking they go off to their heaven was the Happy Hunting Ground. But we had, you know, I used to tell them at Big Sandy, you have 200 beautiful young women here. Wow! <laughs> and out of that number, and I can remember my wife and I used to talk about, you know, this one young woman that had kind of a, a blonde, what do you call it, a, a reddish blonde hair, and didn't, anyway, can't remember the right term, but then other very pretty girls of all sorts that were just beautiful, beautiful young girls. And some of the fellows appreciated that and married them, and some of them just drifted right on through college and still aren't married. And I remember, some of you remember Patrick Wayne, the big guy that's six foot four and a half and 250 pounds. He was the head of our mailing office for a while. Mrs. Nestor worked with him. And since I taught him at Big Sandy, I used to tell the guys, I said, you're supposed to be married by age 30. 
And if you're not married by age 30, you begin to get weird. You get too selfish as you get older. And I said, I want all of you and I'm going to come after you if you don't get married by age 30. Well, of course, Patrick was kidding. He's a great big strong guy, but he still looked on me a little bit with love and like a second father. One time he came up to me there and he said, in San Diego at the office, he said, well, I just turned 30 and I'm still not married. What am I going to do? And I said, well, I guess I'll give you a papal dispensation, you know, for two more years. <laughs> you better get to looking, Patrick, <laughs> and so on. And a uh, very nice fellow. But at any rate, uh, we're to be merciful with one another. Of course, I couldn't beat him up anyway <laughs> or anything else. I guess I could have fired him for not getting married. Anyway, uh, but we tried to encourage them to do those things that were good. But each of us has tried to help the others the best way we can and make their lives more full. Every phase and facet of their lives. How can you serve them? And brethren, as new people come in the church and as older people, I mean, as other people are here with us in the church, just think each one of you and each one of you off in Perth, Australia and Cape Town and Johannesburg and Brisbane and, and the rest of the places that get these tapes all over. Try to think of this. How can I help these other human beings? How can I help these old people? And try to put yourself in their shoes, you know, so to speak. Here are old people. They need help. They need encouragement. How can you help them? Some of you younger women could try to help them and serve them, even physically by doing some of their chores. Some of them don't have enough money to hire a maid. Maybe you can take turns helping and so on. And some older men just need encouragement. Sometimes a beautiful young woman can go up and just smile and visit. Some guy that's my age or older, they're not usually going to take that the wrong way. They're already old and maybe their wife is dead or they have children or as I do, great-grandchildren. So they're not going to, you know, they'll just know you're, you're a very attractive young woman and you're adopting them as a father. And they love that. They appreciate that very much. They're not going to try to ask you out for a date or something. <laughs> Unless they're crazy. If you're, they're crazy, well, you can, you can tell them that, I guess. Or you could, in a nice way, <laughs> or ask the minister to talk to them gently. But at any rate, help each one. Try to help the ladies. Try to help the men, the old and the young. Help our young people. Think, how can I help the young people? Some of you may see new young people coming in, and you could invite them over, you families, to your house and help them and reach out to them. And some, we have a few black brethren here in the church. I think we only have two or three today. Sometimes we have a number more. And you know how, think, if, what were you, if you were a black uh, a member of the church, maybe in some of our churches and worldwide, you used to have more blacks than whites in a church. But if you're just one or two or three or five out of a group, Maybe you would need more kindness and encouragement, invite over to your house and help so that they feel part of the family, the church family. We're all one in Christ and reach out to them in those ways and the right way. And however you can, try to get in their shoes and help them, encourage them, build them, serve them. And as new people come in the church, don't try to watch them and see if their hair's a little long or they aren't dressed properly or the woman's got young woman has, wears her dress too short, as I said, or whatever it is. That's not the point. She's not going to come in naked. You know that. Just let the minister take care of it after weeks or months if he needs to. They'll probably look around and say, you know, we, we have a certain type of approach to God, and they'll figure that out after a few months. Think, this is another human being that I need to reach out to. I need to encourage them to help them and go up and visit with them and make them feel happy and make them feel welcome, welcome, and then begin to have a regular program. And maybe as time goes on, Mr. Ames is not here and Mr. Crockett's not here. They're the 
co-pastor and an associate pastor, but we can maybe get a program going where we could actually have a, a program in the church where we could begin to have a regular system of inviting new people over and different groups, uh, hospitality uh, committee or whatever we call it, you know, that would be the type of people that would have the kind of home and capacity to do that, a welcoming committee, a hospitality committee, and we could make people feel welcome because we want to do that, but if we don't have an organized approach, I mean, we're all busy and we just don't do it sometimes, and that's not good. So we want to do these things in a right way and asking God to help us do it in the right attitude, not just to get for ourselves, not just to try to grow in numbers, but because we honestly love these human beings made in God's image and we want to serve them, help them, build them. So reach out to them. Reach out to the important people and reach out to the unimportant people. <laughs> Remember Jesus talked about the Apostle James. He says, if you have a man and he comes in in rich apparel, you know, he has a tailor-made suit and he looks like this, well, I better be real friendly with him. He may have a lot of money and he's very important. So people always, you know, rush up to him and spend more time with him. No, don't do that. Spend time with everybody. Every human being is made in God's image. Every human being is the potential son of the great God, the creator of heaven and earth, and love them, help them, and serve them. Try to reach out to them. This is what we've all got to learn to do better. Me, you, all of us. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you would, at this point, brethren. 1 Thessalonians, just on back a couple chapters here from Galatians, a couple of books toward the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's begin reading here in verse 4. Paul writes this new church. He says, but as we... He means himself and the other ministers, Timothy, Titus, others working with him, have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's a wonderful trust to be given that opportunity to talk to you about the whole purpose of human existence. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men. We're not supposed to please men. If I were trying to please men, I should have stayed in the Methodist church. We'd had a lot more people. I got a big, you know, nice mainstream congregation in a wealthy suburb and an easy life. We're not supposed to do that. We're to teach the truth. Cry aloud. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their sins. God commands His true ministers. So we're not to please ourselves, but please God who tests the hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men. They weren't trying to flatter people, either from you or others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. And he apparently is talking about getting money from them and telling them they ought to tithe. We might have made those demands. It was God's law, but He didn't command that. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Interesting example, isn't it? A nursing mother cherishes her own children. And I told you before, and it really was even a moving thing to me, that each of my wives, I say to the newer people, my first wife died of cancer about nearly 30 years ago when I remarried and my present wife is here with me. But each one, when they had children, they just loved them and helped them, encouraged them, and so on. And uh, I know my present wife, Cheryl, just, just literally when little David and Jonathan were young, would literally wrap herself around them when they were feeling bad or hurting. And, and, and when she took them to bed, she would just sleep like this and, and they would be encased in her arms all night. She just felt so warm and loving and protective of them. It was just beautiful. And uh, 
you know, I, I should have thought that way, but I just don't think that way. I'm a wicked man. <laughs> and a nursing mother has that tremendous warmth and kindness and spirit of service toward her own children. And that's the way all of us ought to be in a spiritual sense to one another, to lay down our lives for brethren. A nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you've become dear to us. As I told you, brethren, on the baptizing tours, even when I was a young minister, and even before I was ordained, the first tour, we were driving and driving ourselves, and all day long, all summer long, the years of 1951, 1952, 1953, when I was 21, 22, 23 years old, all the other guys were having fun, and my friends in the world, I knew that. I'd visit them on occasion. They were dating and carrying on and going out to the country club and one thing and the other. What was I doing? I was losing sleep, staying in cheap motels, cozy court, or, you know, or whatever we could find. They didn't have the great big holiday inns back then everywhere. And we would have to eat wherever we could find some food. We only usually ate one hot meal in the entire day, driving ourselves on. But I never really ever have spent one minute worrying about that or kind of regretting that I did that. I've always been so grateful as I look back on the faces of those people and how much we were able to help them and serve them and bring them along. So we ought to have that attitude toward brethren. It's hard to have it in a normal setting. It's right in the same place with people you know and you know their faults and you kind of rub against each other. But we've got to have that attitude, build that attitude, pray for that attitude, cultivate that attitude. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring day and night, which we certainly did on those tours, and many of us doing God's work from time to time. We can all do more, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among who, you who believe. And we all ought to do that. That was a, made me feel good when I used to read this. I realized, man, all summer long my friends were having fun. Some of them were getting drunk and chasing women and all, and I was off there. Not one date. They didn't even hold a girl's hand all summer long. <laughs> you know what I mean? And no movies and no this and no that and just serving God. That was a wonderful feeling. Because I didn't work that hard to serve that much all through the year, but that was, that was a wonderful time. Because of necessity, and well, we didn't have to, we just wanted to. Mr. Armstrong called me a couple times and said, you guys need to slow down and don't wear yourselves out. And we had this big list of people that need to be visited. So we thought, boy, we got to keep going. We were young and healthy. Now you might ask me, why don't you do that today? Well, I have one answer. I'm 75 years old, that's why. <laughs> and if I did that much today, I would be dead pretty quick. So I take it a little bit easier, pace myself, so I can keep on helping and serving a little bit longer. And I don't do that perfectly either. But you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Yes, he had to charge them, be good, obey God, you know, keep his commandments, all those things. Yes, that you would have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God is calling us into his own spirit-born family, into his kingdom, into his glory. We will be glorified with the glory of God. For this reason, we also thank God that without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 
So you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. This new church, these churches in this area imitated whom? They imitated the headquarters church, the mother church, not Rome, Jerusalem. And that's where the Christians kept the Passover. That's where they kept the true day of Pentecost. That's where they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as all church histories know. If you read thorough church histories, they know that. They acknowledge that. To imitate the original apostolic church in Jesus Christ. So that's what we ought to do in every way. But Paul was telling us how to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another, as a nursing mother cherishes her children, and as a father exhorts and encourages and teaches his children, all in a balanced and a loving way, from the approach of servant leadership. How can I help? How can I build up? How can I help this other human being reach his or her potential? And if they're in a situation where there may be an over their heads and they can't help others there, move them somewhere else if you're in charge, or they can do better, but reach their human potential without hurting others along the way. Try to have wisdom and ask God for wisdom. All right, let's go now to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. And I'm going to begin reading here, first of all, in chapter uh, 11. Proverbs 11, and beginning in verse 24. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. You see, brethren, if you give, if you serve, if you water others, so to speak, if you're generous with others and you lay down your life, you give them of your goods, you give them of your time, you have them into your home, you feed them, you clothe them and need be, you do everything you can to help them, then God will cause it to come back on you. You will be blessed by that. That's a law. God will bless you. The generous soul will be made rich. So don't be afraid to practice generosity. Don't be afraid to practice giving and helping and serving and servant leadership. God will bless you in the process. Turn now to chapter 18, if you would, brethren. Proverbs 18 and verse 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, one thing we all need to do is to be more friendly. And also one big aspect of friendliness that we all need to practice is proper communication. Many people lack that. They, we find we've had deacons or ministers who don't tell others what's going on and why and how they can do better and, and uh, why this and that needs to be done and let them know and bring them into the picture like you would one of your own family. Don't you say, we're going to do this and, and then you just leave them there hanging. Well, why? And you don't explain to them. Communication, sharing, sharing where they're part of the family. They're included. But be friendly and outflowing concern in every way you can. And then you can have more friends and servant leadership involves that kind of thing, building a family atmosphere. And then in chapter 19, verse 17, it says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. Be good to poor people, people that have need. They may not just need money. They might need encouragement. They may need a ride to church. They may need help in a number of ways. And he will pay back what he has given or has given. God will play back you. He will take care of you. Don't be afraid to trust Him, you see. Don't say, well, I'm like, I'll lose something by giving. No, you won't. You will not lose by giving. It will come back to you. And God's Word says, says that over and over in various ways. Verse 22, 
What is desired in a man is kindness, but as you look in the margin, it's printed right in mine, and I've looked it up. What is desired in a man is loving kindness. I think that's a beautiful word, don't you? Loving kindness. Loving kindness. I remember a few people that I've known that just really exemplify that. They just sort of have a warmth and a kindness flowing out a lot. One of those of recent time that I remembered so much was Mr. John of Wynn, just having constant attitude of service and humility and loving kindness. What is desired in a man is loving kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. So we want to build that atmosphere and approach of loving kindness. Turn to chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 21, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 21. Chapter 21, verse 21. He who follows righteousness and mercy, notice this, if you follow righteousness, but some people say, I'm going to follow righteousness. I'm going to live by all these rules. I'm going to make sure everyone else lives by all these rules right down the line. If they don't, I'm going to get on their case. No. (laughs) He who follows righteousness and mercy, you help them, you encourage them, you teach them, you show empathy with them even in their weakness, not that you try to condone it, but you know that you've made mistakes too. So you follow righteousness, but you also follow mercy. Finds life, righteousness, and honor. Boy, you will be given eternal life and honor if you develop those characteristics. And then you turn to the next chapter, chapter 22, Proverbs 22, verse 4. By humility and the fear of the eternal, deep, profound awareness, you know, of your own weakness. And that you need to be humble. And so you need to be kind to others. By humility and the fear of the eternal are riches and honor and life. Very wonderful proverb. All right, let's turn now, if you would, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, brethren, just near the end of your New Testament, chapter 5. Here he's talking to elders. But as you know, we're all going to be elders. We're all going to be judges. We're all going to be kings and priests. God says over and over, the saints will rule the world under Jesus Christ. He's king of kings. He will be over all the other kings. And so that's our job, to be elders, to be leaders, to be teachers in tomorrow's world. So in principle, these things apply to all of us. The elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Not as a dictator. A shepherd doesn't get out a big iron bar and start hitting the sheep over the head. You know that. If you've ever seen a shepherd, they encourage them, they talk to them, they have a way of making them want to follow them. They don't actually go behind them beating on them. The shepherd usually goes ahead and the sheep know who is the shepherd. He feeds them, he helps them, and therefore they follow him. So shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, not just to try to get ahead in some way, but eagerly. It's not just for money, but maybe you want to serve them to get ahead in a sort of an office. You want a bigger office. You want a big title. No, don't do it because you want that either, but because you honestly want to serve them. And if you can serve them better with a lesser title, a lesser job for a while, and learn lessons, that's best too. Just put yourself in God's hands. Have confidence and trust in the living Christ. Nor is being lords over those entrusted you. Don't have the attitude, I'm in charge here all the time. Do you know who's in charge here? 
one of the guys on the old baptizing tour, some of many of you older brethren have heard this before probably, but he literally took, he used to talk a lot about government, but he'd take the younger men out on the tours and all across the United States explaining people that had written in asking for baptism. We weren't trying to convert them, but then these tours would go out day after day, night after night, and this man, if they turned up the radio, he'd turn on the radio, and if they turned up the radio or changed the station, they'd be together for hours. If they touched the radio or anything without asking him first, he'd say, do you know who's in charge here? You know, <laughs> ghastly. <laughs> uh, you don't do that. That's not the attitude. But we've got to understand that. Our attitude should be want to help and to serve. Not being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples. Think, I'm here as the light of the world. I'm to help this young man and to show him how to love. I'm to show him how to give and to help and to serve these people. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. All of us ought to try to do that and be clothed with humility. And as we say, that's not easy. Be clothed with humility to where you constantly recognize how weak you are and you're there to give, you're there to help, you're there to serve. Be clothed with humility. So your whole attitude is being a servant. For God resists the proud. He does, brethren. He resists the proud. People come in, you know who's in charge here, and they have that approach. God does not like that. And we've got to constantly have the attitude, I'm here to serve and honestly help others. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He, He will do the exalting. He may exalt you in due time. It may not be immediately, but in due time. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And brethren, He does care for each one of you. You're made in His image, and He wants you to succeed, and He wants you to be happy, and He wants you to live everlastingly in His kingdom and His family, in an atmosphere of love and kindness and service and humility and obedience and cooperation. He wants that. He cares for you. So we want to reflect that. Reflect our Father in that way. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 20, if you would. Acts, the book of Acts chapter 20. And let's begin reading here, if you would, in verse 32. Here Paul had just been teaching the elders at Ephesus who came over to meet him here briefly. And he warns them. He says in verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He literally wept at times. Please don't let this apostasy take over because the apostasy was starting to take over even in Paul's day. And later during the dark ages, the false church took over. They did away with God's Sabbath. They did away with God's holy days. They changed everything. They changed the whole concept of God, the whole concept of the purpose for human life. He warned them day and night with tears because he loved them. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I didn't come here to get from you, he told them. And if you follow Paul's life, he certainly didn't. He had to do without many, many times. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. In his case, as he said... He went above and beyond rather than living off the tithes. 
And of course, some of you, you might think, why don't you do that? Well, I guess we could, but we wouldn't have any work. We'd have no money for television, no money for publishing, no money for anything. We're living in a different age when we can reach the whole world, which Paul could not reach. He just had to reach a few places where he was in person. So we have to have these things in that sense, and we can't take two jobs. In fact, we tell our ministers, don't take two jobs. Just devote yourselves to the ministry, because most of them had three or four or five churches that have to go here and there and lose sleep and get, you know, disoriented at times of the travel and the sacrifice and so on. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak, because he set that example himself. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And brethren, those are beautiful words. We would not have those words normally because they did not come in the Gospels. Matthew didn't write them. Mark, Luke, John. Somehow later, years later, the Apostle Paul tells us these words in the inspired Scripture. Words of Jesus. A whole way of life. A way of giving, of helping, of serving. It's more blessed to give. Servant leaders are those who try to give. They try to impart encouragement. They try to help their fellow man achieve his potential by the way they encourage them and help them. And if you're over someone or their boss, try to help them achieve their potential the best you can. Take care of them. Give them every opportunity and so on. Each of us ought to do that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Of course, they were emotional people. Men did kiss each other on the cheek back there regularly more than they do today. But you can see the attitude they had, you know, the loving, warmth, tremendous affection. If a man has been cold, I'm just telling you this and I'm telling you that. They would never do that to that kind of a man. Yes, Paul was strict. Yes, he preached powerfully. He said, I warned you night and day about this apostasy. But when he dealt with them, he dealt in love. And they loved him. And they fell down on the sand on the beach and knelt down and prayed with him. And they fell on his neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the attitude of love, of family, of servant leadership in action. And the apostle, as it was most perfectly exemplified, of course, in Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. So, brethren, let us truly try to serve one another. Try to serve the new people as they come in. Think, how can I help them? Because later on, we may have hundreds of new people, thousands around the world, I mean, gradually starting to come in from all these doors, these openings that we have to preach the truth all around the earth. Reader's Digest ads, the Inspiration Network, all these big stations, the Inspiration Network reaching the British Isles and Northwestern Europe and, and North Africa and the Middle East. I said, we even had this letter from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's reaching those places now, right now. The truth for the first time in many, many years. So let's be thankful and prepare to warmly welcome and serve one another and warmly welcome and serve constantly our new brethren coming along and conscientiously do that. Pray about it. Give yourselves to that. And in that way, we will certainly learn the whole approach of servant leadership And in that way, we will learn to obey the command, the instruction that Christ gave. It is more blessed to give than to receive.